Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, with schools set to return tomorrow and high levels of staff expected to be absent. How will the education system cope and will they have enough teachers to provide classes as normal? It comes as COVID topped the agenda at the first cabinet meeting of the year. NIFID will meet again tomorrow. We don't anticipate any major um, changes to the current set of restrictions, um, but that's a matter for NIFID and I don't want to preempt it. Dr. Coleman Nocter will be live in studio with his top tips for maintaining your mental health in 2022. And later, cheap slabs of beer are now a thing of the past as the government's minimum alcohol pricing came into force this week, but not everyone is happy. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Teaching unions have warned that thousands of staff will be absent tomorrow as schools reopen their doors after the Christmas break in the morning. Well, joining me now in studio is Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, Social Democrat TD Gary Gannon, and via Skype tonight, I'm joined by Professor of Health Systems at DCU, Anthony Staines, and General Secretary of the ASDI, Kieran Christie. And um, if I could come to you first, Anthony Staines, you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight and Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, but Anthony, from your perspective, um, uh, as, as a public health expert in this area, we don't have um, the data on how schools will withstand Omicron. So what's your reopening? What's your view on the reopening of all the schools tomorrow morning? I think we should reopen the schools if we can. I think closing schools is really one of the very last things you should do in a pandemic. But the price of that is to do the work to make the schools as safe as possible. And that work kind of hasn't been done. So we've been asking about high quality masks. We've been asking about air filtration in schools. We've been asking about um, antigen tests for teachers. What we've got is carbon dioxide monitors, which tell you how bad your ventilation is, but nothing much more. Uh, secondary schools and some primary school children are masked. We are va- starting to vaccinate primary school children, which is, is great, it's absolutely fantastic. But we haven't done all the stuff we should do to make schools safe. And we know from work in other countries that whatever uh, the chief medical officer says here, that this virus spreads in schools, this virus spreads among, among children and from children to staff. And we just need to acknowledge that and get on, as, as we are with many other workplaces, mm-hmm. making schools as safe as we possibly can. And if we fail in that attempt, then we, you know, we think of something else. But we, we haven't made the attempt. And we're now running the risks of opening up 
And do you think the Department of Education has done anything right in this regard? They're, they're, they're very firmly believe that schools should open, and many would argue, yes, they're mm -hmm. an essential service. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just for parents, it's not just for anybody else, it's for children. It's really important that yeah. they go to school and that we don't have the situation that we had um, last year when we saw the schools close for, for such a long period of time. Um, so mm -hmm. would you accept that that's important and that in this regard, the department in introducing antigen testing, um, albeit quite late, uh, masks for over mm -hmm. nines, that there are some measures that are in place that do seem to be working albeit at a later it, period than they yeah. should be. They have made a start, it's, and I accept that fully. It's not at the right scale. It needs to be ramped up much further, much faster. I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I started my career as a paediatrician, and I have no doubt whatsoever that schools are critical to children's development, to their social lives, to their socialization, to their health in all sorts of ways which is why we, we should close schools as a last resort. Mm. But there is a price for that, which is to do everything we can to make schools safe first. And you know, we've started down that path. We just need to go further. The advice to schools and air filters in particular is intensely confusing. And it's not helpful to a, a principal or a head teacher trying to work out what he or she should do in their schools, in their classrooms. That's not fair. That's not right. Essentially, um, they want the professionals in to really help them out with this. Um, Fiona Lachlan, I, I, I want to ask you about this because, you know, the mantra has been schools are safe. And then the mantra was schools are safer and now the schools are reopening and we're hearing there from, and it's not just Anthony Staines, it's many health ex experts saying the mitigation measures just aren't in place. They need to be ramped up. Would you agree with this? Schools are as safe as the community is. And that's what the research shows, that in terms of the extent of coronavirus within the community, that is mirrored in the school. The school is certainly no more dangerous and in fact it is generally safer than even you know the normal household. Well, what about those mitigation measures that Anthony Staines just mentioned there talking about you know having the medical grade masks in place for teaching staff having those HEPA filters in place I mean the, we, we got the funding I think was all cleared a month ago the, but, but the funding was all tape, cleared. They're not in schools they're not in classrooms where they're needed. They're in some classrooms and the reason there isn't a clear message in terms of HEPA filters is that it's actually sometimes not the best answer. It's part of a suite of measures. 62 million euros was made available to schools to be able to purchase HEPA filters and there was advice in a particular section in the department. Schools are given the funding to employ a local architect to look at what's needed. Under the emergency yeah. works, this is an important thing, under the emergency works, the schools were also allowed to apply. 17 schools applied and they thought they needed HEPA filters. But in fact, when the local architects looked, they did need funding for other mitigation measures in terms of ventilation. And that's what's important here. It's ventilation. It's not necessarily the HEPA filters. But just also on that, so the I, antigen I, tests are, I mean, have been made. 
provide they available? They do provide cleaner air in our classroom. I mean, that's been accepted. But, but they, I mean, you, would, you wouldn't get all the millions of euro in funding if they didn't accept that this was a solution and part of the suite of measures that we're talking about it, here. And it all depends on the type of buildings and on the okay. type of classrooms. And that, I absolutely want to acknowledge the nervousness that is there among the school community and among parents. And I understand that. And there's many challenges that are going Excellent. to be there facing the school community. Right. Gary Gannon, um, your thoughts on that, you know, an acknowledgement that there is nervousness. Everyone's nervous about it, but, but it has to happen. We don't need to acknowledge the obvious. We won't be doing sitting in a classroom tomorrow with oversized classrooms and in antiquated buildings where there isn't the clear ventilation. But let's just be clear on that 62 million that was spoken about. That was 62 million that has been suggested could be for HEPA filters and ventilation devices. That's part of a small essential works grant. It happens every year. There was 30 million given every year. This year there was an extra 70 million for secondary schools. However, secondary schools never no, got it no, before. I didn't. Yes, but let's just be as for, for secondary schools, which you didn't. But that could also be go to fix a bathroom, to fix a window. Some schools will have to choose mm. whether they redevelop a bathroom or fix a window. And then what I found really amusing was school principals weren't given the department didn't procure the HEPA filters themselves they've left it up to school principals to go out and procure HEPA filters so now school principals have to be in charge of contact tracing in their schools they have to source HEPA filtration devices they have to be the one now to be looking for substitute teachers school principals are probably the one people in our whole school community who probably couldn't have been given that job but the department just abandoned any sense of responsibility and said, this is going to be a disaster. Let it be your disaster As rather than their failure. As a principal, would you be happy dealing with that tomorrow morning? I mean, and all over Christmas, trying to get uh, your school in order before reopening tomorrow morning? I wasn't a former principal, I was, I was a former teacher. Okay. And in fact, I have volunteered, I've contacted my local schools to say that if they are stuck mm. for a substitute, I'd be happy to go back next week. But uh, that aside... I would go back. The, the work of the teaching community is hugely, hugely important. And that's been acknowledged right across the board. But you acknowledge and the frustration that's I also there among, among teachers. But also, staff. can I say okay. that NEFID are naturally risk adverse and they're cautious and they're saying that that it is safe to open the school. So I would take a lot of comfort from that. Right. All right, well, let's, let's get a word from, from the schools. We can go to the General Secretary of the ASTI, Kieran Christie, who joins us tonight um, via Skype. Thank you for joining us on the programme. What's the mood among teachers? Because your union had looked for a staggered reopening um, tomorrow. Uh, you got some reassurances in that remote meeting, did you, from the Minister for Education? Um, that in fact has meant that you will open as planned tomorrow morning. Good evening, Claire. Uh, I suppose at the outset, I should say, uh, we in the STI share the views of the professor there when he said that, you know, we want uh, schools reopened and we want them opened uh, safely and coherently to the maximum uh, possible number of students. Now, you, you're asking me about the reopening tomorrow morning. Uh, we are hearing uh, that there are a, 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 a sizable and growing number of schools nationwide who are in actual fact bringing in uh, less than the full complement of students. Uh, they're bringing in the leaving certs and the junior certs, precisely the strategy that we advocated earlier in the week uh, or, or maybe other groups. Um, because, uh, uh, and, and that's the thing that will be growing, uh, uh, an element of a staggered return because it's the sensible option and it's happening all over the country. And why are they speak. making that decision? Are they making that decision because of a shortage of staff or because that's been the view of unions that this is the best way to go about it, bring in the exam classes and leave others at home? Well, I spent this afternoon talking to principals who were telling me they're going to have a sleepless night because even 
in the, in the time between lunchtime and, and five o'clock this evening, we're getting texts and phone calls of additional staff members uh, on the teaching side and on the SNAs and, and all the rest of it, uh, going down as close contacts or getting COVID or whatever it is. And they don't really know exactly what they're facing into in the morning. And uh, typically I'm hearing it's sort of 10 to 30% absences that they're seeking to cope with. And that's why uh, several schools tonight have uh, contacted parents and they're bringing in reduced numbers in order to have a coherent and uh, staggered um, uh, uh, response so to they this act, and see so what they're doing. So essentially, there is a staggered reopening happening, even well, though in some schools, the Minister not, not for Education every... has given assurances that all schools will open tomorrow. Well, no, um, we're hearing that in the schools that it's happening, uh, and it's not all schools, but we're hearing that in the schools that it's happening, it's coming with the blessing of the Department of Education. So I think that there's an acknowledgement there uh, of, of uh, common sense from the information that's coming to them from, from the ground. But can I say this? Uh, you asked earlier on uh, in relation to, uh, you know, preparation for this. Can I just use this example? And uh, it's it's is it all really. And it's in the area of masks. Um you know, I think all of your audience looking in tonight would would imagine that a sensible thing to do would to have a box of medical grade masks sitting outside the door of every classroom tomorrow morning for all students and teachers who who require them. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we have a minister uh, who's who's waiting for her phone to ring from somebody from public health to tell her that that's a good idea before she'll implement it. And that's that's pretty much where we're at with this. Um, uh, Deputy Gannon mentioned there about the, the, the funding and the HEPA filters and so on. That's not to mention that, you, you know, uh, principals not only have to source these things, but there's an entire procurement process mm -hmm. that's yeah. quite labyrinthine. And as I understand, a, a lot of red tape around that um, for, for principals to kind of get, get their heads around in terms of sourcing the yeah. filters should and then ensuring they're going in the right place. There should have been uh, there should have been a central procurement process uh, managed by the Department of Education and streamlined so that uh, HIPAA filters where they're needed could be got into classrooms from tomorrow morning. But I that didn't happen. I want to ask uh, Anthony Staines um, uh, just about those masks, uh, specifically the medical grade mm -hmm. masks. They've come really into the spotlight in the last few weeks, especially with this Omicron variant. Can you tell us how much more effective these masks are versus the ones that most of us are probably using, which is the cloth masks or the, the sort of blue and white surgical masks that you see plenty of people using as well? What's the difference? The, the estimates are that they're about twice as effective. So the risk reduction goes from 50% for your ordinary mask to about 80%, 85% for an FFP2 mask, which is the kind of the little seam down your nose. Um, and they are widely available. The, the evidence that exists, which isn't huge, but it does suggest they're a good choice. Yeah, they're a good choice, but would you say they are an essential choice now um, in our schools where we do have, um, I suppose, even the, the level of unvaccinated children that are there and the fact that we're going to have um, packed classrooms again tomorrow when we have this, this variant that we know is so transmissible? I think, that, I think they probably are. The challenge is that in the primary schools where children are unvaccinated, it's not the easiest thing to get child size FFP2 masks. It is possible and it's certainly easy for older children, but for small children, it could be quite challenging. Okay, but certainly so something that could be considered for teachers, at least. 
Yeah, and absolutely. Ju just on that, Fiona, um, and we heard there the frustration, I think, um, that uh, uh, Kieran Christie was voicing on behalf of teachers saying, instead of the department supplying boxes of these masks, which I don't know, I, I imagine you can, you can buy them so they could be got, uh, staff have to go to the school boards of management in order to get clearance or to ask for them for them to be approved in order for them to be bought. I mean, what, what's that about? At the end of the day, the virus is like a wildfire and it's just going exactly. in many, it's many going in many different well, directions. Isn't that the point? But, but you know, all, of, all, all this is doing we, is, we, is stalling we, those we mitigation measures from, that we from, need. We don't know from day to day in terms of, of the direction that it's going to go. The public health advice is changing also. At the moment, that is the advice that schools can actually buy that from their capitation grant I know, with the approval. So, it does appear to be a bit of a department due turn on it. So like, I, I think I don't they were given sort so. of assurances and no, then it was like, no, we're going to look into I, that. In the meantime, if you want them, my, ask the board. My understanding from the meeting that the minister held yesterday with public health officials and with, yes, and, and with teacher unions, that, and it was a productive meeting, that it was agreed that the minister would go back again and, and have ask a Public health to take it as no, not have a think, but to ask public health to take a look at it again and examine that, it further. Yeah. And, and if there is a recommendation, then that then will be no incredible that Cannon. there was a roundtable meeting yesterday with a minister and several stakeholders, and they came away with a different understanding of what happened at that meeting. It just denotes another poor communication on the part of the department. I have another concern here. The schools are not opening fully and there are going to be students who won't be able to attend school either tomorrow or sometime next week or a week after. We've still done nothing in terms of ensuring that there was a hybrid option for schools where some students would be in class and some students would be at home. That is a grotesque failure. That's going to have implications for students. How would that the... work, Gary? Would that be someone dialing in and being it, able to see the class, having a camera see... in place? Absolutely. But in order for that to happen, we would have had to have a much greater emphasis on getting a laptop into students' hands over the course of the last year. Preempt the fact that this virus was going to be with us. Now we're going to have an inequality of technology that's going to kick in over the next couple of weeks where some students will not be able to access learning at home and that's going to become, become a bigger deal. We have failed to prepare, we have failed to learn and the consequences are going to be felt by students across the board. Can I just say in relation to that, all of the expertise would yeah. show us that in-classroom teaching is it's, absolutely yeah. the best way forward. But what if now, you're in terms, isolating or what I'm, I'm just going to come to that point. That that in if you were looking at a hybrid, it's very difficult for a teacher to teach a class and also mm. to be trying to teach online. I remember seeing it in Australia, in uh, Alice Springs, wh where they were doing that. What my understanding is, and it goes back to what Kieran has said in relation to schools having the autonomy, with the advice from the department to make decisions. And that's absolutely right. But in terms of, an, and I certainly know schools where they have made the decisions, okay. where teachers that are isolating, that they can actually teach online sure. to children that, that are isolated. It that has, hasn't I, been implemented. I can and tell there are students that that is happening. Yeah, but it hasn't been mandated by the department. No, it's not so, mandated no, but that's because, exactly. because an autonomous decision, but it's all about trying to have a partnership and a collaborative I want approach to, uh, with principals okay, and school I, I want to just go back to Kieran Christie. Um, we know that there is um, a status yellow weather alert in place tomorrow, um, and that means chance of snow, sleet, plummeting temperatures. Uh, with the situation we're all already hearing about in schools, open windows and a need to keep um, windows open in order to have fresh air coming in, how worried are you about how cold classrooms are going to be and what are you going to do about that? 
sure, look, that's only another factor to heap along uh, on top of all the other factors that are causing enormous unease among teachers and students and parents tonight as we speak. Um, you know, uh, there has been an element of incoherence in relation to the response to this and preparation for this. And uh, I was at the meeting that, that was referred to there by, by your, your two panellists in studio. And uh, uh, I had to ask for this review in relation to masks because it obviously hadn't been done over the Christmas period and it's being done now. But, you know, uh, that, that gives you an indication of the level of, uh, of planning that has gone on. And, uh, you know, we all wanted to work out. I sincerely hope that the, all the schools uh, have all the students in uh, in short order. That's our position. But we want it done coherently and in a safe and, and uh, coherent fashion. And it's not shaping up all that well from what we're hearing right. here this evening. We'll have to see what the next few days and weeks bring. Um, my thanks to uh, my panel on that. And just to bring you some other news uh, tonight, Australia has cancelled the visa of world number one tennis star Novak Djokovic. The player was due to play in the Australian Open tournament after being exempted from vaccination rules. However, his team had not requested a visa that permits medical exemptions for being unvaccinated. Djokovic has not spoken about his vaccination status. The country intends to deport the star tomorrow, but his lawyers are expected to appeal. My thanks, as I say, to the panel who joined us there to talk about the schools tonight. And coming up after the break, Dr. Coleman Nocter offers his expert advice about starting the new year on a positive note. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back now. It's some unease about schools reopening tomorrow and people caught up in the new year, new me hype. What's the best approach for a positive start to the new year? Well, Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona O'Loughlin is still here and I'm joined by child and adolescent psychoanalytical psychotherapist, Dr. Coleman Nocter. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. It's probably the time of year that plenty of people will be coming to you looking for advice on how to get through this time of year. But there's all this uncertainty that's back again and all um, the anxiety around COVID and everything to top off, which what is already, I imagine, quite a difficult time of year for many people. Yeah, I mean, January is always that kind of peak 
kind of gloom bit, you know, the, the excess of Christmas is over and the tree is down and there's a kind of a, there's a, a natural grimness to it. There always has been, and it would always see some sort of a spike in referrals around January. Last year and this year though, it was a different, there was a different connotation to it. It was amplified by fatigue, I think. Um, and I, de I definitely think in the last number of weeks and months, there's a real struggle. Uh, I think people saw last year as, you know, the vaccine rollout is our way out of this. And this time next year, we'll all be doing normal things. And as this year rolled around and we found ourselves in this really weird deja vu situation of January spiking numbers and anxiety around returning to school, everything else. It, I think there's been a fatigue of hope almost in that way. And, uh, and again, maybe younger children and kind of becoming like a six year old has had three years in lockdown, which is half of their life. And so, you know, that, that a childhood lasts a lifetime and so from someone the, who has a six-year-old mm, i actually didn't mm, even think of it that way but it's fairly incredible yeah and then you know with that because we we're talking about in the first part about the schools returning and you know whether you know many parents out there are anxious about it or really happy or what what kids feel about all of that all this discussion around the safety in schools and with the infection levels we see around that's that's causing a lot of anxiety as well i imagine yeah i mean i mean children are not immune to atmosphere and so they pick up on anxiety in families and homes and and, and in schools i'm guessing as well and, and, and it's not a binary thing around it good or bad you know this there's all of these measures have been suiting certain people and not others and there'll always be a, a group of people who'll be more anxious than than others but there's something kind of pervasive around the young people that i'm seeing and a lot of them are kind of you know, they wouldn't have had difficulties had it not have been for this. Uh, you know, I think there is, there is a mental health cost to this. Um, and young people, I think, are describing a kind of an absence of happiness as opposed to a presence of sadness, if that makes any sense. You know, so this kind of the, the languishing of what we've been doing for the last few years is almost there's um, there's a joylessness to it uh, that school isn't as much fun as it used to be and all the kind of everything that we do has a, a kind of a, a covid theme to it um, and, and again the younger generation don't have a baseline of what maybe that was before or, or some young people would say I forget that what it was like before COVID. You know, if you're 13 years of age and you were 10 going into this, you know, so there, there's there is a, a real need for us to to kind of find some joy in something. And I, I really yeah. think this year is about you know always the the January thing is you know I'm going to join the gym, I'm going to do 10,000 steps, I'm going to you know uh, change something about myself and make it better. I would be it's a saying, big ask, isn't yeah, it? I think, I this, think year, this year, you know, this year we because we're fatigued already. I would say, I would think, you know, keep those expectations really manageable. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the services that are in place and how stretched they are now. Like they're already stretched, I imagine, but mm. given and um, what we've seen in the past couple of years and and people who maybe referred to your services who who have not needed it before or wouldn't normally be in the system are now are now waiting to be seen and waiting to be heard. Yeah, I mean, I said it before, I mean, average around five emails a week prior to pandemic, maybe north of 20, you know, in the last six months or so. So that's going to be reflective on, you know, a huge rush of people who need support. Now that necessarily might not be mental health services support, but support, psychological support around how to manage. And, uh, and the waiting lists are, are, are significant. The access to service, you know, we say to people, talk to somebody, but we don't have anyone to talk to. Um, and and that, that was, that's not a COVID thing. Were, those waiting lists and difficulties were there pre-COVID, but certainly the impact, COVID has slowed everything down in terms of virtual 
virtual sessions, you know, appointments having to be delayed and uh, staff crises, etc. So, Fiona, do you think it's been thought enough about we are dealing with the public health crisis and all that goes with that? But are we thinking really about the effects of that on, on the very vulnerable? I think we are, and we want our young people to thrive. There's no doubt to strive and to thrive. And what Coleman is saying is that absence of happiness is not allowing them to do that. In terms of the supports that have been put in, Minister Mary Butler ensured that there was a budget of over a billion euros for mental health supports in 2022. And there was an extra 47 million in there to ensure that there would be supports, particularly to deal with the extra demand around COVID. And Coleman was talking about waiting lists and, you know, like it's, it's awful that young people had been waiting both in terms of CAMs and in terms I mean, I of services they need. record waiting lists now. Well, not now, because to be fair, number one priority for Minister Butler was the reduction for under 18s. And there was, there's been a reduction of 19% in that in 2021. I think it's important to note that we need to put more funding, in my view, into the likes of Jigsaw and in terms of being able to secure private services such as Coleman and some of the extra 47 million euros has gone into that to ensure that there are services across are the seven days. We always need to do more. Are you seeing that Coleman? Yeah, I mean, and there's another crisis where we can't fill posts because we're not training enough people in it, you know, so the, the posts are there, but there's no one to go into them. And, and, they, and again, in, in cams and things like that, it's, it's maybe a shortage of, we're not training enough people in the, in the first instance. And, and again, you know, with mental health, we kind of, think about it as, as a kind of a reactive issue. My thoughts on it is that we need to really concentrate more on prevention and in that early you know, primary care, Desmond Tutu said, you know, we need to stop pulling people out of the stream and find out, go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think we need a much more creative way of looking at children's mental health to look at the societal issues that are maybe yeah. doing that. But, but again, the, 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 crisis, the mental health teams have always been overstretched. But I do, I do think with COVID, um, you know, we've had poor succession planning, people who retire and there's no one to, mm. to fill those spots. Um, we have to do better yeah. in terms of looking after people. Talking, if you were to think about measures that need to be put in place now, because we know this is this is long term. I mean, they're already talking about even in terms of vaccine programmes and boosters and everything else and what we're going to see, likely see for the next few years, perhaps every winter. Putting in place then those structures that will help children and help older people as well, adults, um, navigate their way through this. What, what needs to be in place that wouldn't be necessarily, as you say, you know, getting to the point um, that they need that um, intervention? We need better primary care services where we dictate from early on and signpost these children into the right services. When they, when they show signs of this early in their childhood, that we're able to screen these children, we're able to get them access to the right services. What we're doing now is we're putting them on waiting lists, waiting for the problems to really occur, and then we're managing a crisis. So you're firefighting. When in actual fact, we know mental health prognosis is early, early detection. That's the key. We need to find these children early and try and support them as much as we can. We need mental health supports and schools, we need better primary care services, and we need to be really investing in that younger age group as well. There is a lot of government lip service on this when it suits, isn't there? And then the reality is quite different on the ground for, for children and, and people who need the services. Well, that's not the case because, and, and I accept it's more about outcomes than the money that's been invested in. But, you know, I, I did go through the amount of money that has gone, like well over a billion euros is, is quite significant. And that is filtering down to the areas. But as Coleman says, the problem is that 
particularly in CAMS, I understand that there's a problem filling posts. But can I just say, in terms of education, we need to look at non-formal and informal education as well too. We need to look at creative arts. We need to look at drama. We need to, I was in a school in Newbridge before Christmas where they had restorative justice practices, which I thought were hugely, hugely important in terms of checking in to see where young people were at and to see those that needed help. So I do agree. I think we need to look at it in the round and we need to look at more creative support and every school should have access, without a shadow of a doubt, to qualified counsellors in, to enable, to support that young person within the school environment. Okay, bigger picture, Coleman, like new year, new you, as you say, like people joining the gym and trying to do these things, or maybe they're not this year, but how can we, we look ahead to this year and pull some hope or optimism from it? Uh, I'd be looking at pampering ourselves this year rather than torturing ourselves, if that makes any sense. I mean, again, I, I think from the point of view, it's really important that we find some hope and joy this year and, and in whatever way that you can. And maybe it's not about like expectation minus reality equals happiness. So from the point of view, we can't do anything about reality, but we can reduce our expectations and we can manage them. And maybe we're not failing everything. Maybe we're surviving everything. This is a once in a lifetime, a hundred year event that we're going through. And we just need to, to kind of realize that and take that into account. And for children who have missed out on all these developmental, they need to be accommodated as they return to school and all of these things that they have developmentally been cryogenically frozen for a period of time. And we need to offer those supports, but we just need to be patient with each other. There's a real tetchiness around at the moment. Mm. I can see it in all different, we're, we're dying to get angry with each other and road rage or getting angry at referees or whatever it might be. Um, and that tetchiness and impatience is, is pervasive. Um, and we really need to manage that because I do think that's, that is an issue. But just further on the, on the services issue, children have health needs, they have social needs, and they have educational needs. We need to be across the board looking at all those agree. things as opposed to just making it about health services. Agree. Okay, my thanks to you, Dr. Coleman, Noctor. Um, and just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines if you'd like any more help and advice on that matter. Um, we'll leave it there, but coming up next, will minimum unit alcohol pricing drive uh, the consumer north of the border for their drink. Lots more after this break. Welcome back. Now, with minimum unit alcohol pricing coming into effect this week, the measure means the state became one of only a small number of countries worldwide to introduce a legal floor price for the cost of alcoholic drinks. Well, Fianna Falls, Fiona O'Loughlin is still here, and I'm joined by Head of Ag Advocacy and Communications at Alcohol Action Ireland, Eunan McKinney, and Irish Independent columnist Eno Doherty to discuss this. Um, Union, I'd like to come to you first on this. It's obviously something Alcohol Action... Ireland would have lobbied strongly on. Now the week has finally come. It's come about um, a minimum price for alcoholic drinks. Um, tell us why you feel this was such an important measure. Well, it's part of a series of measures, a set, a set of suite of measures that are contained within the Public Health Alcohol Act. And essentially what the government and public policy is endeavouring to do is to try and reduce alcohol use by about 20%. And the key way to do that 
is to try and address the drivers of consumption. And so price is a fundamental part of that, as is promotion, as is the availability, as is the information that the consumer is given. So what the price is, 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 is to try and ensure that the price is less affordable than it had been previously. And does that mean somebody will decide not to drink? No, that does not mean that. What it means is that people who drink too much too often may drink a little less. And the endeavour is to bring about about an 8% reduction uh, across the whole of the population. Now, amongst the heaviest users of alcohol, the, those who might be considered high risk, um, it could be as high as 15% of a reduction in those people. But overall, the average, you know, the, the less, what we call the low risk drinker, they're about 3%. So between them all, it's about an 8% reduction. Now, 8% doesn't sound like a lot, but 8% is a huge amount because in the context of a society that drinks nearly 10, 11 litres per capita, you can see that 8% brings down another litre. Mm. And so the government, back in 2012, after the substance misuse strategy was published, it said, you know, we should set a target. We were then at about 11, just over 11, and they said we want to set a target of 9 litres per capita. So it's a journey. It's a generational shift. And this will take some time. So lot, nine litres per capita, just to, to break Every that man, down. woman and child over the age of 15 drinking 9.1 litres of pure alcohol every year. That's what we consume. No, no, we consume far more than that. We consume nearly 11, about 10. To bring it down. Yeah. But we want, to bring, we want to bring it down to nine. Yeah. Yeah. Is that not a good thing? 11 litres we're consuming a year of pure alcohol, Ian O'Doherty, that we would bring that down to nine. Well, they, they managed to get a reduction of 8% in Scotland when Scotland brought in a similar uh, scheme. And then there was a 12% increase in the purchase of uh, illegal cheaper drugs um, in the same areas. Because, look, let's be honest. This is, maybe it's meant well. I'm not so sure. Um, this is wrong on so many levels. Fundamentally, this is a tax on the poor. It's a, it's a sin tax on the working class, on people of lower incomes, because the higher end drinks aren't being affected by this at all. So if you're a middle class or if you're a higher earner, this has no impact on you whatsoever. But just to put it into the human thing, we, we can forget about all the statistics and you know we can bandy around statistics all we want. We all know our stats, we all know our figures. That can be massaged. To put things into just a human perspective, this is the first week of the new year. People are chased off, they're broke, it's January, everybody's you know got the hump. And I went into my Tesco, my local supermarket the other night, and what had been a case of Rockshore that was going for 15 quid mm. had all of a sudden, overnight, gone up to 28, right? That's effectively, now I'm not great at maths, but that's nearly double overnight, right? And this is just targeting people. And in the Indo, the other day, we had a, an elderly lady who was interviewed and she'd gone in and she was shocked. She didn't know that this was coming in. And she couldn't buy her bottle of wine because she only had a fiver on her and the bottle okay. of wine had gone up to what, seven. What about so this that, argument? It's really, it's, 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 that's a public health measure. I mean, no, it's not a public health measure. This, this is, is all about control. This is, this is very little to do with drink, ultimately. This is all about control. For the last two years, we've had the public health officials basically dictating how the state works. And now what they're doing is that they're punishing the people they don't like. OK. It's about control, Fiona. 
Absolutely not. Ian is entitled to his opinion, but not to his facts. This was brought in in 2018, well before COVID. But, but at the time, it was kept back to be in line with Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, they're not there yet. Can I just give a very stark fact? At the end of the day, three people a day die from alcohol in this country. That's a thousand people a year. And there are many that develop chronic disease, cancers, different types of cancers and well, strokes. Well, why not ban alcohol altogether? Not at just all. Just be honest. I, no, just I be honest and ban, not, al and ban alcohol altogether. I would not believe in banning alcohol altogether. Loads of and people died on the I roads th last it, year, ban cars. It, it is a public health measure. I have two concerns about it, though. One is that people may go over the border because we're not in line with Northern Ireland, and that's going to be detrimental to people uh, on, on this side of, of, of Ireland. And the second concern that I have is that if, say, you know, the, 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 the main person who has finance within a household, if they have a heavy drink problem and it doesn't, their consumption doesn't stop, then there is less money in the household yeah. for what's needed. And I do have, you know, that genuine concern. Overall, though, I think it is the right way to go forward. This is one of the arguments around it, that you're targeting the poor with this measure, that people who can afford to drink, they're still the people who are going to end up in hospitals, mm. but they can afford to get that drink. And it's those who can't mm. who are now left not being able to afford it. Yeah, but it's not targeting anybody other than people who use alcohol. That's the fundamental well, point. Well, essentially because you're looking no, no, at no, the no, minimum no, price. No, no, it's specifically no, no, targeted in particular. I've only asked ask the question. Well, that, that, but, but that is one of the criticisms been, around it. So, you know, so what, what do you say the, to the that? Poor, that it's, the poor it's going to push people further into poverty. are not impacted by it in the way that people think it would be. Because the actual class, the middle class and the more wealthier people are people who drink more in this country than anybody else. The other impact in relation to the lower income groups is that actually when you look at the data around lower income groups that the highest level of abstinence is abstemiousness amongst that group and they also have the highest adherence to the low risk guidelines. So it doesn't, so is it the right it doesn't area really to manage. Target? It doesn't really manage. If you look, I mean I won't bore you with all the details, but if you look at the study in relation to what was done for MUP, it actually will cost lower income groups about 24 euros a year. That's what it's predicted to cost. So it's not that. So a prediction. Very little, very little in that context. So in terms of the cross-border trade, I mean, Fiona would know that you know, we have spent about 460 million across the border every year as it stands. You know, the CSO data has, you know, expert views in relation to the household spend. Will it and ramp up now for people to go No, go I don't think morning? it will. Because so? again, I mean, are you really going Why to get not, in though, your when car? When you're seeing that almost doubling, I mean, prices up 200%, I think. Yeah, but now you have to remember, Ian's quoting a price of 15 euros because the alcohol producers and the alcohol retailers were hyper-discounting alcohol before Christmas, during Christmas and into the new year because they knew minimum unit pricing was coming in. So they had to shift the product that they had already created. But you don't think this is going to create that problem of, no. of people who, because the, the, the drink isn't cheap enough here, they will go over the border. You're not going to get, get in your car from Offaly or from South Kildare or from Cork and drive to the no, uh, north No, but around Leitrim, Monaghan, Donegal, you But they'll do that anyways. Okay. But do that Sorry, anyways. if I could just... We, the, the would you problem? be travelling? Would you be travelling north to get your... Well, I can't, I, I, I can't drive. So okay, <laughs> would someone but, give you a lift? But would you get the train? This way. I, grew up in, I, I grew up in the 80s and my parents every year went up to Newry. And this is the crucial point, the broader point. This isn't just about the booze. When they went up to Newry, they stuffed the car with every cheaper good that they could get. So basically, people aren't just going up. 
to buy a couple of slabs of beer. They're going to go up and they're going to make it worth their while. So basically every local retail shop in, in, in the Republic that would that normally area. have seen those customers, th that, that trade is gone. And it's not just the trade for the booze. No. The trade is, is, is gone for everything. But this is, this, this, no, this is spectacularly is, stupid. Is it, about, is it about, Ian, though, a behavioural change? I mean, it is targeting, OK, I mean, you're saying, you know, that it's not going to affect um, lower income families as much as not maybe in the you, way think, you think, but yes. it is going to target uh, younger people and young people. And it, it's it's they want it to be a deterrent, deterrent I, I presume that's the Well, the thing it. is, it's, 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 it's not the job of the government or any unelected public health official to basically tutor us in the ways of moral righteousness and to tax us into behaving the way that well, they Well, it's not a tax it, for a start. Right? Do, we need to change, do we need to change our behaviour? Some people do and some people don't. But the thing is, if we're going to assume that we're all re relatively reasonable adults, the last person we're ever trying to change my behaviour was my mother. And, I, you know, I've already had one mammy. I don't need a nanny coming in and telling me how to live my life. And quite frankly, I resent it and I'm not going to go along with it. Um, it's, we are one of a, a small handful of countries who've adopted mm. this. How has it worked in other countries, Union? It's worked quite well. Um, it was initially designed as a targeted measure in Canada, in the provinces in Canada, Saskatchewan and British Columbia. And there it had a similar sort of effect that we're predicting here, around 8 9% reduction. But it also had a significant impact in relation to hospitalisations and deaths, as it happened in those countries. Most recently, it's been introduced in the Northern Territory in Australia, that, that state in Australia. Mm. And it has made a significant difference there because it actually was a very targeted measure on a particular... Um, product called cask wines and they actually cut the sales of cask wines by about 50%. So it's a very targeted measure and to go back to your point in relation to who is it at targeting, it's targeting people who drink too much alcohol and those people are binge drinkers primarily. Now you can categorise them as young if you wish but I don't, I just consider them as binge drinkers and people who are high risk users of alcohol. People who are drinking more than 50 units a week. So if we can get those to step back a little bit just a little bit, by 8, by 10, by 15%. Okay. We, will see, the the we will see the impact the last in the hospitals. Going to, and remember, going to there are 1,000 people yeah. tonight lying in hospital beds because of alcohol-related illness okay. and incident. The other argument being made is the real winners here are you know, the supermarkets, the off-licenses, the, the, the revenue that you know, retailers will take a pocket of this increase. They will, they will enjoy um, you know, money that will come off the back of this, of this price increase. Yeah, and a lot of supermarkets were using them as last leaders to attract people in to do the, their other shopping there. I personally think that the difference in the cost should go in to a particular fund that would be for public health, for addiction purposes, in terms of helping people with alcohol dependency. I think that would be a much better way of using that money. Yeah, is that, shouldn't that happen? Is that happening? Well, uh, the level and the availability of timely treatment services in this country is quite appalling. You know, that's, that's a fact. And that's a separate discussion about alcohol treatment services because they really are But if quite we poor. are talking about heavy users yeah. and we're talking about people that will high be... High-risk users. And yeah, high-risk yeah, users yeah, who yeah. will be... Um, then need to go to hospital will be seriously ill with mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned a suite of measures. Isn't yeah. this an area that we really need to look oh, at? Oh, absolutely. But, but, but to go back to the, the core point about the revenue, where's the revenue going? I mean, the revenue in the short term will undoubtedly go to the retailers. But remember, the purpose of the whole measure is to reduce alcohol by 20%. And that's a fundamental point. Okay. If we want to make progress, we have to sell less alcohol. Simple. All right. Would you, would you buy that argument in any way, Ian? No, absolutely not. <laughs>
Let's put these things into perspective, right? This is basically, as Eunan said, this is the beginning of a suite of measures. It's, you can call it the salami effect. If they get away with this one, they'll start taking other slices out of our freedoms. What a lot of people have forgotten as well, or they haven't even seen, was that in tandem with this, the HSE released a statement over the Christmas that some miraculously evaded any attention, where they've now come out and explicitly said that they want to ban tobacco sales. Right. I, so I what's going to happen... It's, it's among measures being explored but, but, at the but, moment. But, but this is shows the lack of understanding of human nature of our supposed elders and betters. Every time they put a tax on cigarettes, the cigarette smugglers in Henry okay. Street Quickly get more. On. And now what they're doing is basically we're going to hammer Irish shops as people cross the border and give Newry all their money. Oh. That's how it's going to... That's how it happened in the past. That's how it's going to happen now. You, these people might be experts in their fields, but they don't understand okay. human nature. All right. Uh, will people look for cheaper booze elsewhere? I mean, black market stuff, if it's not the north. Tomorrow they might. OK. And next week they might. But next month they won't. All right. And next year they won't. And it'll, over time, they we'll, will drink we'll less. We'll come back to you on that. So uh, behaviours will change. change. Behaviours will change. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here and from my panel, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.